here on ESPN 1000. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday morning. Talked a lot about Patrick Kane in the first hour, likely having played his final game in a Blackhawks uniform. Not yesterday, but earlier in the week, uh, Wednesday, when the Hawks took on the Stars, Patrick Kane has come back to Chicago and, per his agent, is going to reflect as it looks like the Hawks are set to send him to the New York Rangers. And we just played the final moments of the Red Sox-Braves game in spring training yesterday when the Braves batter, Cal Conley, was called out in a bottom-of-the-ninth situation, game tied at six, bases loaded, two strikes on Conley. He did not get into the hitter's box. Or, I'm sorry, he he was in the box, but he was not, as Brian mentioned earlier, alert to the pitcher. And so the final strike was rung up on him, and game over. 6-6 six, six tie. It's spring training. So wackiness ensues. We're discussing the new Major League Baseball rules now that we've had an opportunity to get a look at them and see them in play. It's a perfect chance for us, Brian, to welcome in Jesse Rogers, who is covering spring training right now in Florida. He was in Arizona earlier in the week. Jess, wackiness ensues one day in, or I guess it's two <laughs> days in. Good stuff. Uh, your thoughts in uh, some of the reaction you're hearing from around the league of yesterday's Red Sox Braves finale, which ended on a pitch clock violation. Yeah, I, I picked the wrong game to go to. I was uh, up uh, up the road a little bit in uh, at Baltimore's camp, so I missed. I, I wasn't there, but obviously, you know, I have talked to people in the league, and you know, first of all, I, I before the weekend started, I asked some some league officials what would chaos what, on on the scale of one to ten, what would chaos look like to you, and 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 their version was a ten would not be what we saw yesterday. It would be if umpires were totally confused and there were meetings on the mound between them and and the clock operator didn't know what he was doing so to them chaos was was all sorts of process oriented issues yesterday is exactly what they wanted to happen in fact if i wasn't if i didn't know better i think they 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 asked for some weird ending the first weekend for one so everybody is sort of alert to it now they have over a month to figure this out if you're a player do you think either of those any of those people involved in yesterday will ever Take that, you know, that chance again, the batter, the hitter, the catcher, because there was some debate about all that. I think it's going to wake everybody up to these new rules to have something like that happen on day one. And the other thing is, I think it's good for the game because it creates debate. We need some debate in baseball. Every other sport has debate. Hell, ESPN has shows just made for debate when it comes to the NBA and NFL. So I love the fact that it happened. I love the fact that it happened on day one. No, I won't love it if it's, you know, September 5th and a, and a, and a pennant game, race game is decided by it. But let's hope that by the time we get there, everybody's going to be okay with it and um, up to speed with it. And, and I don't know if it'll be by April, but hopefully soon enough. Well, MLB, uh, you know, did a poll of minor leaguers, and they said 90% of the responding minor leaguers said it took them a month or less to adjust last year as they experimented with the stuff. And the pitch timer infractions went from 1.73 per game in the first week to 0.53 per game by the sixth week. And, you know, they said it was they, – they caught on rather quickly. And we, Jeff and I were just talking about, though, I mean, the, the catcher needs to be in his box, you know, within the chalk lines, but he can be standing up. And the batter can be in the box, but if he's not looking at the pitcher – quote quote unquote alert to the pitcher then he's in violation of the rule these umpires have a lot to be paying attention to 
They do. They do. And I think that quietly the league is kind of, um, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say happy, but, but please the fact that 10 umps retired and they, the, the 10 they hired all came from the minors that everyone is leaning on anybody that's been in the minors. I'm talking about, you know, major league managers right now are leaning on coaches that were in the minors, especially in spring training because they're all here. Um, umpires are leaning on umpires that were in the minors. So you have to remember a good number of players and umpires have been through a lot of this stuff. And yes, there's a whole new group that has to learn it. And I think they will remember that was day one. I, my game day one, two violations. That's day one. There were two. And by the way, they're both hitting hitter violations. So we've seen hitting violations. We've seen pitcher violations. Um, I imagine, yes, coming May, there's going to be more. And I'll throw in another wrench into this thing. Um, the WBC is not using any of these rules. So in a week, everyone's going to their teams. They're going to Japan. They're going to, and all of a sudden for the next, you know, almost month, they're going to play without any of these rules. And then they're all going to come back for about a week to 10 days to finish spring training, and go back to those rules. So it's not the perfect year to institute these things. And that's why I do think as, as, as much as we might see some evening out during March, I think we're going to see an increase in violations in April because of all this stuff and, Obviously, those games matter, Brian. But, yes, it's a lot for everyone to get used to. But, luckily, it's 30-plus spring training games for for many people, at least. You alluded to it. It's interesting, Jess. Uh, I think about it, and absolutely, this is exactly what Major League Baseball wanted. They wanted a critical moment to be, you know, could you have asked for it at the first full day when all the teams are in action to have a pitch clock violation, to end the game abruptly, to call a batter out. They want this in place so that everybody, it, I mean, like for it to happen in those circumstances has us talking about it, right? We wouldn't, Brian and I would not be talking about Red Sox Braves, the conclusion of a spring training game, had what not occurred yesterday, had it not occurred, right? So this is exactly what Major League Baseball wants. They want to point to it and say, take it seriously, you figure it out. Take spring training to get acclimated, and then a week or two in, when we get into the actual regular season, you will realize we're not messing around. And then, as Theo Epstein was on with Cap and Jay Hood earlier in the week, pointed out, it was, what, a three- to four-week learning curve for the most part for players? Yeah. And they'll adjust, and then quickly, I think it'll kind of fall to the backdrop. I think so. The one caveat is you cannot replicate um, the minor league's and I don't even know if you'd call anything in the minor leagues high leverage. You can't replicate any of that um, in, in terms of, you know, that intense pressure to the major leagues, right? Just mm-hmm. even the stadiums and the fans and everything. So it, it could be longer than three to four weeks. We, it, it, who knows? It, the veteran reliever that may, may never get used. We just There are certain things we're not sure of, but at least it did um, show in the minors that guys got used to it. I, I will say this about yesterday in the debate. Like, what if that game was the regular season? The ninth inning ended that way. Since it was tied, we would have ended the ninth on a, on a gimmick and then started the tenth on a gimmick. I mean, the, sure. the traditionalist <laughs> head would have would have blown up. You know, he ended the, the ninth on a strike. By the way, that is a strikeout for the pitcher. Mm-hmm. It is a called strike three. You know, it is a called strike three. And um, just for people wondering, I, I had a few people ask me yesterday about scoring at home. So, and then the tenth inning, of course, would have started with a man on second, which they, they don't do in spring training. But you know what? Just get used to it. It's still people. Oh, it's not baseball. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. There's some. There's a few gimmicks along the way, but it, it's still the hitter, the pitcher, the fielder. I'll, I'll say this about the bigger bases. I, I made sure to go down. If you did not, if I did not know they were bigger, I would not have noticed it. There's, you I would agree. not have noticed. I, I agree maybe, with you. I, I was maybe watching, if you, yeah, I was watching yeah. on TV, maybe Jess, and thinking the same thing. It's like yeah. you could barely even notice. 
You, yeah, right. You can, I saw a couple stolen bases at my game. Then I saw a guy get get thrown out. So I think there'll be an increase in attempts. But for the most part, I'm, I mean, most people are happy with this. My game went 253, but there was like 20 runs scored in. I can't remember the final score. So 253, 20 runs, that, that's probably down from 353, right? Sure. And I tweeted this out. I mean, there were a couple one, two, three innings that, if, I mean, if you look down, you're going to miss them. I mean, the one, two, three innings will fly unless you have a 15 pitch at bat, right? Because it's boom, 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 you know? So that, but that's fine. There's nothing wrong with a fast one, two, three inning. Between innings, field uh, felt faster, felt faster. They start the clock at 2.15 as soon as the last out's made. In the old days, I used to watch teams after the end of the inning, the hitting team that, that made the last out. They wouldn't go out on the field for 90 seconds. And that's a long time. If you're waiting for the, the team that's supposed to go out on the field, we, you didn't, I didn't see that yesterday. They went out on the field right away. So the intention was for the dead time to, to disappear. And, you know, I saw that a lot yesterday. There were a lot shorter games than, than mine. I think we'll have some sub-two-hour games this year. Mm. Um, look, you can drink a lot of beer in an hour and 50 minutes, Brian. Don't worry about it. You so can save a lot I'm of money for... by, by not spending three and a half hours at the ballpark. Yeah, you could that too. That too. I know there's some people. I heard some guys on this on the station yesterday talking about it, maybe Friday that liked the long long game. Oh, you know what? It was Sylvie. It was Sylvie. He said he was a Zetterman and they loved the four hour game. And I knew for a fact. I don't know what game, what year he went to. But if he's with his kids, Mason and Braxton, there is no way in hell he wants a four hour game. So everybody's a little different. But in general, I I agree. I think baseball's rhythm is more to two and a half to three at most, not three to four. I think that's the, that's the good rhythm of baseball, to me at least. Well, Jeff, Jeff just told us that Manny Machado, uh, you know, reports are now that he's going to sign. He's finalizing yeah. an 11-year, $350 million deal a week after telling the Padres, I'll be out of here after this season. Um, Tom Ricketts did his annual uh, spring training chat with the media. He obviously was asked about spending. Did you discern anything, any change in, in how they're going to operate on the north side uh, anytime soon? No, no, no. I did not discern any change there. But what is happening in San Diego is probably more important than actually, in my opinion, what's happening in New York. Mm. And what I mean is a big market owner is spending. Okay, George Steinbrenner used to spend. Big deal. When a small market owner, and San Diego is a small market, is spending like he's spending that's really turning the baseball world upside down. Our, our, our buddy, my colleague, Jeff Passan, asked Manfred this question um, uh, a couple weeks ago in a media conference. It, it, are the San Diego Padres the blueprint for the smaller market teams? In other words, spending money to make money. You know what happened after they signed Xander Bogarts? The San Diego Padres had to cut off their season ticket sales. They had to cut off. He is spending money to make money, which is exactly the opposite thing I always say about Jerry Reinsdorf. He's not necessarily willing to spend money to make money. He'll spend it if he has it first. And a lot of these owners are like that. Do you think the Pirates are going to sell out and then start spending? I mean, how are they going to sell out if they have no players? So the Padres' ownership has, has turned everything upside down, in my opinion, proving a small market team can do it. Now, the league will, sell, will say the Padres are going to lose millions. And Manfred's answer to passing was exactly that. It's not sustainable. So my answer about Ricketts is we kind of know him as a measured guy, right? He's not Steve Cohn. He's also not even Peter Seidler. He's a measured guy that will spend money when he deems it the team is ready, when it's coming in. And now, of course, it is coming in. Wrigley's full, sportsbooks opening. And so I do see them spending, but just not like the push all the chips in 
like Steve Cohn is on one end of the spectrum and Peter Seidler is the owner of the Padres on the other end. So that that's kind of he's somewhere in the middle. At least he's not the Pirates guy, Bob Nutting or one of these other guys. <laughs> but he's not. He's he, you know, this guy in San Diego is really making other owners look bad, even more than Steve Cohn, in my opinion. And I you know what, Jess, I love it. And as a White Sox fan. Sox West, as I've called the Padres over the last few years, because it seems like everything the White Sox have been in on, the Padres have just been there to stick their finger in the White Sox eyes, including it all began when they traded Fernando Tatis Jr. for James Shields way back when. And ever since then, it seems like every move that the White Sox were rumored to be in on, the Padres ultimately would somehow, some way end up trumping them. I love it, though. Even though I should hate the Padres, I love an owner who wants to go out there and win. And you know what? I don't give a damn, Rob Manfred if the Padres end up losing millions of dollars. Guess what? Their billionaire owner will cope with it somehow, some way. And if he has to end up selling his multi-billion dollar asset to fund it down the road, then maybe he ends up leaving San Diego as, as, a, you know, as a celebrated owner because he was willing to spend and try and win games. And as fans, I don't care. I don't care about your bottom line, Tom Ricketts. I don't care about your bottom line, Jerry Reinsdorf. I'm here rooting for that team. And you know what? The, the one thing I hate to hearing from Reinsdorf is when, you know, whenever you hear it alluded to the fact that there's if they if uh, attendance, if, if White Sox games were more highly attended at guaranteed rate field, then be, they'd be willing to push and go all in. OK, whatever. You know who comes out to. Yeah. You know, when yeah. fans go out, go out to baseball games when you're winning lots and lots of right. games. And Peter Seidler of the Padres have, has, has you know, taken that route. We're going to win first. And I know the fans will come. And by the way. Do, do any of us completely believe the Padres lose money if they've sold out every season ticket? And basically, they might sell out every game with that team, but maybe not. But anyway, if they make it to the playoffs, if they get to the World Series, all that playoff money, mm-hmm. all that TV mm-hmm. money, mm-hmm. It even is the small. Do we know for sure they're going to lose money? That's the problem. The league says we'd open the books, but you won't believe the ha. books even if we did open them. So well, here's it's, a, the thing. It's, it's a whole mess. Jess, here's the thing. The value yeah. of sports franchises. I mean, look at the the – the worst of the franchises in any league, they've gone up 30, 40, 50%. Jerry Reinsdorf and his investment group bought the Chicago White Sox in 1980, 1981 for $20 million. They've won one World Series. They don't sell out. They're in the great uh, middle of, of just good enough or just bad enough, however you want to phrase it. They're worth probably, if, if he actually put that on the market and, and, and sold, it's between 2 and $3 billion. He might get $4 billion. Just because it's Chicago. Yeah. So you might not be liquid. You might not have the operating capital you want to put out there. But no one's losing money when you own a sports franchise. The, the value of these right. franchises are through the roof. Well, this is what they would tell you. And remember the, the famous quote uh, Ricketts gave me about biblical losses. coming That went viral. Mm-hmm. Everyone went nuts. Coming off of that, I talked to a Cub official. And he just kind of broke it down to this, its simplest form. And he said, Jesse, look, you buy a Picasso it goes up in value, but every year you lose money because you're paying insurance on it. It doesn't pay you any money, right, every year, but eventually you get it back when mm-hmm. you sell it. Now, the difference, of course, in a baseball team is they are bringing money in via TV and attendance. But he was trying to make this larger point, and Brian, you just made it, that we, we run at an operating loss, yet we know that the value of this thing is going to make us even richer someday, but, but not while we own it. I still don't necessarily believe it, like a lot of people don't, right? Um, but but even if it's true, you will eventually be doubling your money. And, and so why not win in the interim? 
I think that's what your point is, Jeff. You may as well win because at the end, you are going to make money no matter what your payroll is. You're going to be everyone are going to throw parades for you. I mean, I, I feel like that should yes. be part of it, but it, it isn't always legacy isn't always part of an owner's um, thing. Right. It's, it's, it's his portfolio. I, I think legacy for some guys is part of his thing. And Peter Seidler and yes. Steve Cohn are two guys. Again, big market, small market that believe that. Those are the type of people you want owning your sports franchise. A guy like Bob Nutting is an embarrassment to the Pittsburgh Pirates and the entire organization when he complains about not having a salary cap, when all they do is cash checks for the uh, competitive balance tax in Pittsburgh. Um, And oh, by the way, Jess, uh, to close this out, you know who people don't feel sorry for? The person who can afford to own a Picasso. That's ultimately what exactly. it would be. So, so sorry, boo-hoo. If you can't afford the Picasso, you might have to just sell it off. That's the reality of the situation. Right. Before we spring you, Jess, though, you did cover yeah. the Blackhawks for a long time. We've been talking a lot today about Patrick Kane, who has likely played his last game as a member of the Blackhawks. Just your thoughts on um, just a magnificent career and probably the best athlete in the city of Chicago over the last 20 years. I mean, it's a good point because... On his worst day, he was better than most because he was so skilled. And I saw him at his peak. I mean, I saw him early when he just had eyes in the back of his head and was both the, the playmaker and goal scorer. Great hands. I mean, that, that was obvious to non-hockey fans. His talent, that's how good his talent was. You, if you're a non-hockey fan that tuned in, you knew this guy was something special. He's so smooth as a skater. Um, but the hands stick out. Just the ability and uh, to to uh, play both end play both ends in terms of scoring and assisting wasn't a great defender necessarily because they didn't ask him to do that you didn't want him wasting energy on his end of the ice but in terms of being able to do both things play make and score he was he was damn good and at that at the height there man him and Taves together I used to love when Quinville would pair them with Sharp Sharp Taves and Kane were my, were my favorite three players to watch on the ice at the same time you had every avenue of skill there you had speed you had shot making you had assist uh playmate all that stuff it was it's just amazing and his early years patrick kane i mean they, I, he could have been he could have been even better he was so smooth and so good he probably could have been even better put up some some more big years in terms of goals but he was such a playmaker that that kind of took front and center during those years great stuff as always jess we appreciate it thanks for hopping on uh, and we will catch up with you very soon man you got it, guys. That is my last day. Ten, ten camps in ten days in Ooh. two states. I'm Ooh. headed home for a few. And then get back to uh, Dansby Swanson and uh, Luis Robert uh, in Phoenix. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see you soon. Good stuff. Thanks, Enjoy Jeff. the R&R. Okay, that is guys. Jesse Rogers joining us on the CarX Tire and Auto Hotline. I'm Jeff Meller along with Brian Hanley. We're here till 11 talking Kane, Major League Baseball rules. We should get in some bulls as well, Brian, because uh, we haven't touched on that. Patrick Beverly, apparently... He is the great inspirer. We'll talk about uh, the Bulls' big win over the Nets and uh, what exactly it means for the franchise. We'll do that next. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitter at ESPN1000. This is Chicago's Home for Sports, ESPN Chicago. That is what the Bulls did after absolutely crushing the Brooklyn Nets. 
in Patrick Beverly's debut with the team on Friday, their first game out of the All-Star break after closing out with six straight losses. The Bulls bounce back and now have themselves a win as they try and continue their winning ways this afternoon with a game against the Wizards as they visit the United Center. That uh, game scheduled for a 2.30 tip-off, Bri. And, uh, boy, it's... I don't know what to make of that because certainly it's fun to see the team playing the way Arturis Karnaschovas initially was hoping they would. But the reality is the Brooklyn Nets now, they're in a weird spot too because they just offloaded Kevin Durant a week or so ago. Um, And so they're kind of in a new position as well as a team, not quite the team that really has a 34 and 25 record. So, the Bulls put it on them, and Beverly told everybody that he was going to come in and you know get on Zach Levine, and Zach played excellently, 32 points in 29 minutes, but I don't know where this is going right now. Well, look, last week we were talking about what a you know, novelty, at least in the short term, if they brought in Russell Westbrook, you know, people were speculating whether he would join the Bulls, and it would it'd be different. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, just this this team that's been so obviously flawed and underachieved this year, and been frustrating to watch. It was it was going to be different, and he's so they finally you know they get Patrick Beverly, and for one night he instant energy plus twenty four yep. uh, and plus minus in twenty two minutes uh, defending. You have your uh, your biggest lopsided win in the season. And here's hoping it continues. What well, you have? What twenty one games left? I'd have to go back and check to, to you know even twenty two. Twenty two. So I don't know if there's enough time to not just be a play in team, but to actually get some traction here. But you know, you, you alluded to it. it. It's as as refreshing as it was, and the it was a different team. They came ready to play. They jumped out to a lead. They they rolled the team. They didn't you know give up a, a big lead like they've been wanting to do in the last few weeks. Um, it's also damning that a guy like that can come in and he's just cut from a different cloth. I mean, he, he truly looks like a leader and who can get on guys. And, and I know Billy Donovan talked about he does it in the right way. is more positive, but he's he not afraid to say something to anybody. And it's damning and indicting to the guys who've been here that that hasn't message hasn't been um, spoken or delivered or received. To your point, he sent up a warning flare before he even played his first game. This was on his pod, remember, discussing the move to signing with the Bulls and how he intended on really, to quote the late, great Norm Van Lair, put a foot in their ass. You know, a lot of people, when it's hard to kind of judge me from, you know, all the out, out, outside stuff. You know, a lot of people think it's what I do is putting on a lot of antics and all that extra shit. But when... When in reality, you know, when you when I'm on your team and I'm your teammate and I'm your player and you're my coach, like you get a different vibe. You're like, man, this is my he do anything for the team. You know what I'm saying? So they ain't gonna get that. I'm gonna, you know me, I'm gonna be on Zach with being ass. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him all the energy he need, destroy people. Me and Demar Derozan, we good. I got a, a pop and five. Uh, and Vujovic, I'm excited, man. I'm I'm really excited. I mean, he put it out there and <laughs> he immediately paid off. Now. You know, how sustainable is this for this team? I don't know. And it's, but I think Beverly is going to add an element here where I would be surprised, Brian, if I know a lot of Bulls fans are hoping I work with two every, every day uh, in, uh, actually, I guess all three of them, Sylvie, 
Waddle and Tyler Aki have all been pretty adamant. They're hoping the Bulls can end up, you know, landing in that spot where they'd have the fifth worst record in the league and that way end up having a 42.1% chance of ending up in the top four and thus retaining their pick and not having to send it to Orlando. But I think when you add Beverly, this team, I think it's just a little too good to go backwards. I mean, even though they struggled, I I don't think they're going to end up in that spot. And so I don't know where this goal is ultimately. Yeah, I think the schedule also is among the easier uh, from here out to the end of the season. Uh, in the NBA, so they have that going for them if they want to actually start putting wins together mm-hmm. and stringing together, get some momentum going. But as a fan, you just, you know, God bless the Chicago kid comes back and he has that attitude and not only talks the game but backs it up in the first game. It's just, I'm glad he's here. And, you know, in a week where we got the official word where Lonzo Ball is out, and who knows? I mean, oh, if yeah. you can tell me, is he, he ever going to play for the Bulls again? And he's seen countless doctors, and they say it's a unique injury, and no one seems to have a clear picture no. of of what that ends up. You know, where's the finish line with him? When does that get better? Does it get better? I don't. Yeah, I think at this point, you know, the truth is that it sucks. But I think you have to, if you're the Bulls, if you're Alonzo Ball, I mean, he's going to fight like heck to get back out on the court. But the reality is, I don't think you have any idea when he may play, if he may play another game for the Bulls. And if he does, if he's able to get back out on the court, there's no guarantee that he'll be anything close to the player he once was. Even if he can be pain-free, we don't know what types of limitations he may now have because of the knee injury. And it it sucks, but it's the hand you've been dealt, and you need to move forward. And they're really in a weird spot, though, because, again, um, I don't know. I don't really know how a president of basketball operations and GM can approach it where you're trying for a 42% chance, some lottery luck to change your fortune. But, you know, and that's not really who who would ever advise, Hey, I've got a less than 50% chance here. What do you think? Do you want to try and lose games? Of course, I can see why they don't want to do that, but they put themselves in a very precarious position. And I don't think um, it's going to get, much better for the Bulls anytime soon. It's going to, I think we're going to be in a weird spot here for the next yeah. couple of years um, until, again, it just seems like the reality in this league is unless you're fortunate enough to have a superstar target your organization as the one where he wants to turn it around because good for whatever that, reason, yeah. yeah, good luck. That You really don't have any control over that. So well, only- that, that, that hasn't been the Bulls' story forever. I mean, for, you know, since um, MJ moved on and, you remember when they went out and did the big presentation in, in Cleveland for LeBron, mm-hmm. and then they wind and dine. Uh, D Wade uh, met with him twice here, and you thought there's possibility they're going to get both, not yep. just one. And then obviously they all end up in Miami. Th- this is not a free agent destination, so you have to do it a different way. And that's, you know, they gave Zach Levine max money because. In their world, it made sense. It, in in other teams' worlds, it, it wouldn't have made sense. But there, there are no free agents, you know, knocking down the Bulls' door. And I mean, Ben Wallace was the last big signing, was it, or uh, uh, Carlos Boozer? Yeah. I mean, he was he was the consolation prize. Absolutely. When they were trying to get LeBron and D Wade, right? No, you're absolutely. He was the disappointing consolation prize. Yeah. yeah. And even though Tom Thibodeau was able to usher a an, a, ver- an a great era of winning with Boozer there, he was absolutely an ancillary piece in everything they did. So he didn't really live up to the hype. No, it, they they've never really landed the true super. You know, um, like 
fortune-changing superstar in this yep. league. They've never done that via free agency. And so, uh, really, the only way path forward, you think, is probably some lottery luck. 312-332-3776 if you want to join us. I'm Meller. He's Hanley. I do want to play for you um, Jeff Passan, who joined me and Waddle earlier in the week. And he, we mentioned some of his tweets. He broke the Machado news earlier today. Passan, though, was... And he said it. He was not being hyperbolic in the importance of the pitch clock. I want to play that for you next, Brian. Get your reaction right here on ESPN 1000. Listen to us now, live on the ESPN Chicago app. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN Chicago. crush on your Sunday morning here. We should uh, recognize the Alani's big win over Northwestern earlier this week. And how about your uh, alma mater there, uh, Bri? You uh, had a big win last night over a college program that you're wondering when exactly they'll be relevant again. Yeah, I, and I covered DePaul back in the day. I mean, I ghost wrote uh, Ray, Ray Myers column when they were treated as a professional franchise in the city. And Ray had a column in the Sun-Times and I was a young reporter, and so I'd go there and try to keep Ray focused for an hour, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was not always, because the phone was always ringing, and he was catching up with people. I covered Joey Myers teams, but, you know, two things. One, Marquette was picked a ninth preseason poll for the Big East, and Chaka Smart and his team has surprised everyone. They secured a, a share of the Big East title uh, yesterday by beating DePaul, and it was a 21-point game at half, and, and Marquette, uh, no, Shaka Smart was not happy about it. They, they let the foot off the gas in the second half. But I'm watching that game. I've been watching pretty much every minute of Marquette this year. It's been a fun ride. But having been around the DePaul program all those years ago for a number of years, I, I'm, how many coaches have come and gone? And and it's just they're, they've been the doormat of the Big East. And, and, and may, I just put that on Twitter as I'm watching this game because I'm wondering, does, when does it get better? And when your program is that down for that long does it get better and you know oh the new arena will reinvigorate it even you know it wasn't on campus but it was in chicago it's not in rosemont yeah and now the big arena sits empty for most yep. games you know DePaul plays so i i don't know where they go and and immediately people tweeted back at me well they got to get out of the big east they got to go to the valley they got to go well the big east needs a chicago presence they need the big east money but the money they throw at coaches, it doesn't translate. And I mean, I go back to Tom Crean when he when he recruited D Wade out of the Chicago area, Robinson. He told me one time that he thought if DePaul had really put their their mind to it and, and focused in on him, Tom Crean would he could have driven down from Milwaukee as often as he did, mm-hmm. and he would have had no shot. And he said, to, for whatever reason, DePaul, I think it was Pat Kennedy at the time, didn't didn't get it done. And um for look, Marquette isn't Kentucky or Duke or Kansas, um, but for a time there in 2003, D Wade reinvigorated a, a dormant program and got them to the Final Four. So I feel bad for DePaul fans, and I know a lot of them. I grew up with a lot of them, and I, I just don't know how this gets better anytime soon, or if it does, frankly. No, it's you know. So you know, I grew up while you were ghostwriting 
you know, Ray Meyer's column way back when, uh, I don't know, I assume it was Terry Cummings and Mark Aguirre. Who they were, just left, yeah. Okay, okay, so you, you just missed that era. But obviously yeah. that was the height of mm-hmm. the DePaul basketball sure. you know era there. Um, I did, though, you know, when I was in high school, it was uh, when Quentin Richardson, Richardson and, yep. uh, you know, of course, Bobby Simmons. And was it Lance Williams? He was there for a, mm-hmm. a period of time. So I remember... The there it was still into the you know the mid to late nineties when DePaul had an opportunity to kind of you know it was the college basketball team of choice in the city but you know it, though it's we're so far removed from from that point and that's the last time I truly remember them being relevant the way they were um, I it's just a completely different era of basketball though right you're I don't even know what the path is because you you made the point when they opened the Wintrust Arena you know that was misguided you know i i don't oh, know for sure the, the hope you know like you said the hope was oh, okay you'll have this brand new arena that will really inspire people to go see DePaul basketball but no you if you're off campus you're making things you know and, and i under, i get it the way that you know you are in the city you didn't have you know a, a, a great opportunity to build so you took the you took the advantage of what you could but right. you in the process i think i think that's where they sealed their own fate now they're i they're never going to be same thing. It gets back to right, like we were talking about with Jesse earlier. Uh, the fans will go when you win, yeah, absolutely. And, and, but you have to win at an extraordinary rate to really get to capture the imagination of people. There's so many other, especially things college do. kids. Yeah, college kids. They want that. You know that you know, seventeen thousand plus at Pfizer, where the the Bucks play. Marquette mm-hmm. shares that beautiful arena with them. It's treated as if it's a big time program, and. It, it's it's not why you choose. Well, might have been a big part of why I chose to go to Marquette because Al McGuire just won a championship and they had a pretty good journalism school. Um, but when when you don't have a football team in particular, that is part of you know that is part of the college experience. And college kids aren't going there just because it's your team. You better give them reason to to not don't go do something else or you know you know you know, go to the local pub and buy a beer. You you want that to be part of your college experience, and it's been lacking for DePaul forever. And you know, one thing Marquette did this. I maybe under Tom Crean, um, but they they started chartering their own flights. They got the, a team chef. I mean, they they did everything like Gonzaga was doing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how you attract. That's what you sell in recruiting, right? It's not just here's an arena downtown Chicago or on the outskirts of downtown Chicago. Yeah. It's it's big time and it costs money and it goes back to the Padres like you spend money to make money, you spend money to get people. You had and, and Marquette has some big time alum, now I wouldn't be among those who write big time checks to to do that. But you're paying top dollar for coaches and DePaul by the way is overpaid for really, you know, Mediocre coaching, yes. Um, but then you know, here's Oliver Purnell making five million. And some of it's just been laughable. But when you when you are rebuilding a program, you have to do it at every level, and you have to make it attractive. Certainly now with the transfer portal and name and image likeness money and everything else, you have to be creative in how you spend your money, and you have to have the money to spend. 
Uh, all right. I hope everyone enjoyed a little uh, college hoops detour there. I wanted to uh, mention that, and I figured the Orange Crush REM bed would uh, give us the perfect avenue to take that off ramp. But really quickly, I just want to get your thoughts on Jeff Passan, who joined me and Waddle. I was in for Sylvie earlier this week as he was on vacation, and I asked Jeff Passan about the importance of the pitch clock. And uh, I mean, this maybe it's not that surprising to me, but. He had some strong words about the importance of the pitch clock. I think the the pitch clock is going to be the most transformative thing we've seen in baseball since integration. And, and certainly, like, the two things are extraordinarily different. And right. uh, uh, I'm not trying to minimize what black players uh, and, and eventually uh, Latin American players coming to baseball did to the sport. The game is the game uh, because of that now. But... Uh, the, the effect that this is going to have on baseball writ large, uh, I, I, I don't think it can be overstated. I mean, if, if anyone who's listening or you guys happened to see a minor league game last year, you know what I'm talking about. But it's just it, it's almost like a different sport. And the, the pace at which the game is played when there's a pitch clock, it, it's, it's fantastic. It, it reminds you of what baseball looked like pre-1995 or so, I almost feel like the the strike was like the bifurcation there of when baseball started going down this path where the game got a little too plodding and a little too slow. And I, I love baseball. I've, you know, I've, this is my 20th year covering it now. And uh, in those 20 years, I've, I've seen a, a gradual shift toward these, these three-plus-hour games that just don't appeal as much to uh, a, a culture that has gone toward shorter and shorter attention spans and quicker and quicker bites and, and instantaneous dopamine hits that we've come to expect. Well, you know, I, I think that Major League Baseball is going to have that now, and it's going to be directly because of the pitch clock. And I- so that was uh, really interesting how critical he thinks a change it will be in baseball. And I, I you know, I tend to agree, Bri. I think it's going to be something that I don't think it's necessarily going to draw in people who are, you know, maybe in your your mid twenties, your early thirties, if you haven't if you've grown up with baseball, this era of baseball that Passon just mentioned and it hasn't appealed to you, I don't know if this is going to change your outlook on it, but I do think younger fans will be more likely to watch games and it will it, it'll be harder for them to necessarily you know go away because it's going to i think command your interest a little bit more just by being you know quicker pace and as jeff said like give you that quick dopamine hit no oh, by the way we saw some of that on display over the last couple of days yeah, when you look at the the shot clock in basketball when it was introduced and how that changed, you know, teams couldn't run the four corner offense and just yeah. dull you to death, right? Bore you to death, and the three point line too. And that's become, you know, how many times do you have the conversation? How far do you have to move it back? Because it's not for the Bulls necessarily. For a lot of teams, it's a gimmick, right, to be able to hit hit the three. Um, but there are innovations that change the game and, and change the game for better. I, I'm with Jeff from what I've seen in a very short order. And Jesse mentioned um, a lot of the, the major league coaching staffs are, are picking the brains of their minor league managers who are a camp to figure out, you know, what worked, what do you have to pay attention to? How do you how do you sell it? How do you, you know, make sure everyone, you know, kind of focus in, focus in on the fact that this is here to stay and you better start adapting to it. Um, but the other thing is how many kids play 
baseball anymore. I mean, I know, I know, you know, people have kids on travel teams That's if they're good enough. And, the only way to do it, it's it really is become a club sport in a lot of ways. Yeah, and 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 what you know, again, a thousand years ago, when growing up, every summer's day we would play sandlot baseball. We, we had five, six guys. We you know, pick your field, call you know, call call your field. And your guy would move from left to right, uh, depending righty, lefty, up at bat. Mm-hmm. But that's how we spent our days. And if it wasn't actually organized baseball, it was. And then at night, we'd play wiffle ball in the backyard. And I just don't see that happening happening nearly enough to, to attract that younger fan because it's just not either available uh, to, to some uh, neighborhoods. And, and, and it takes uh, you know a lot of nice parks to, to have a a groom field to play. And uh, frankly, kids just aren't as interested in, in the game itself to, to pick up as they, they go along. And so therefore they're not fans when they get older. It's uh it's a great point, but uh, I do think they're on at least the right path forward to making it a more appealing, aesthetically pleasing game to watch. All right, Cubs fans, Wilson Contreras had an interesting observation about his brand new team, the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm sure you're not going to be happy with this, but we'll share it with you next here on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. ESPN Chicago. Listen now in HD on our app and on ESPN 1000. ESPN 1000, I mentioned as we went to break, Wilson Contreras had some interesting words comparing his former club, the Cubs, with his brand new team, the St. Louis Cardinals. Of course, there's a bit of a rivalry there, Bri. What do you think about Willie saying this? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is, uh, this for me, I like this better. It's a it's better organization. Uh, we all like, almost like old school old school way which I love it um, and that's something that I really like it I was I already talked to uh, the manager about it like how I was a coach here and everything since I got here has been everything just one way the cardinal way and I have to adjust it so uh, it's, it's not it's not it's not it's not that hard I mean it, do everything right and respect each other that's it <laughs> a little sand in the face of the former club on your uh, first uh, day with the new one all I will say about this, and as a Cub fan, um, you know, you can be ticked off about it all you want. Um, but when Theo talked about sustained success and once you get there just to, to get to the postseason so you have a chance every year to win a World Series, mm-hmm. well, that didn't last. It wasn't nearly as sustained as I had hoped. Um, I believe, if memory serves, the Cardinals have had one season under 500 in the last 30 years. So they do not suffer losing uh, gladly and they aspire to be a winning team and a contending team most every year and by the way if you take a look at their roster on paper this year they just look that much better and uh, they are definitely the clear favorites to win the national league central i did want to play this because it doesn't happen too often brian before we get out of here um we mentioned earlier the wacky finish between the red sox and braves uh boston was the epicenter of madness at the final. Um, yesterday, the Celtics 76ers game ended in a weird, weird way. And I don't know if we're going to have time to play that. But how about this? The Boston Bruins close out their game 
with an empty net. Sit out to Hathaway. He runs into Pedersen. A minute to go. Quinn Hughes. Connor Carlin off Besser's stick. Oh, Mark is going to try it. Goalie goal, Bry. How about that by Linus Olmark? Somewhere Eddie Belfort smiling because he always aspired. Uh, I don't know if he actually ever did it, but he was always trying. Olmark became only the 13th goalie in NHL history to score a goal, um, and he's only the eighth to actually shoot the puck into the net. So uh, pretty <laughs> wild. And boy, let me tell you, Linus Olmark now is, he has one goal on the season. He's just three away from uh, tying up the number of losses he has. The Boston Bruins are just Oof. a sledgehammer right now in the NHL and just craziness uh, there. Um, and again, if you missed it, the Celtics 76ers game, ridiculous. Jason Tatum hits a, a game winner with uh, less than two seconds to go. And then Joel Embiid launches a three-quarters court shot that goes in. But he released the ball just moments after the buzzer went off. So he was unable to tie it. The shot did not count. Yeah, the crowd was stunned. They were celebrating. They're like, what? It didn't count? What happened? Go home. It's over. Madness if you're a Beantown sports fan. All right, Brian, thanks for uh, hopping on today. As always, it was a pleasure. We will uh, talk again next week. You're the man. Thanks. That's Brian Hanley. I'm Jeff Miller. Don't forget, big day on Wednesday. Huge, huge programming day. Cap and J-Hood live from the NFL Scouting Combine, starting your day from 5 to 9. Black and Abdallah, 9 to 11. Then you'll get Carmen and Yurko from 11 to 2. Waddle and Sylvie from 2 to 6. And then I will be on with uh, Tyler Aki from 6 to 8. Huge, huge programming day this Wednesday. Make sure you're here on ESPN 1000.